Hi, welcome to the Skrigler podcast. I'm Dimitri Salomir. Uh, you'll notice I'm on my own today. Francesca is not presenting uh, with me, but worry not, she's coming back for the next episode. And it's not all bad news. Uh, the fact that I'm on my own will mean that I uh, will talk a lot less and will actually play some more material, which is great. We're going to start with the story we started playing for you in the previous episode. It's called The Counts. It's by H.O. De Younger. So we played you about a third of it last time, and uh, I'm going to play uh, the rest of it today. And of course, I'll tell you a little bit about Harry De Younger afterwards. Now, there's a really nice surprise for you in the end as well. And there, there'll be some poetry after after this story, and there's another story. So there's plenty of really great material today. So this is Harry the Younger with the accounts. I awoke the next day to find warm rays of the sun shining through the canopy of leaves above. And for a second, I almost forgot of the events that had transpired the previous night. But all too soon... The memories came crashing back, bringing along with them fresh tears. Again, I wept. I wept for hours about all that had befallen me, but my feeling of complete helplessness, and I wept for the fact that I had nowhere to go from here. I wept until my eyes had no more tears to spare, and then I lay there between the fallen leaves, trying to think of what possible reason could there be for my caregiver to have done this to me? Soon the light started to dwindle, and darkness once again took the forest in its freezing grasp. Without my tears to dull my bodily pain, I started to become uncomfortably aware that every inch of my body seemed to ache, and even my throat was sore. My naked body began to shiver, and I wished I had not left my clothes back at the lake. At first I made an attempt to ignore the cold wind against my bare skin, but my body would not allow it. With every shiver that ran through my body, a new wave of pain accompanied it, so I finally resolved to get back up and try and find the lake and my clothes. I moved much slower this night, my body too weak to muster the same kind of fervor it had managed the previous night. I was also much more aware of how the shadows seemed to move, and how menacing the trees seemed themselves. Every sound that came from out the shadowy distance seemed to be too close, each one more menacing than the former. What was even worse was the fact that I had no idea whether or not the direction I had chosen was the right one. I could recall very little of the path I had taken the previous night, and even if I could, I'm not sure it would have helped, for in the shadow-covered labyrinth of trees, every path looked exactly the same. I wandered aimlessly for most of the night, with nothing but my fogging breath and the frightened tears to keep me company. I was on the verge of crying again, when finally I saw something hopeful in the distance. I could not distinguish what it was exactly, but the strange glow filled me with more hope than I had experienced since my caregiver's attempt to kill me. I increased my pace as I made for the flickering light, my eyes scouring the growth for sign of anything that might trip me up again. I could feel the blossom of hope blooming inside me 
as I fully comprehended what it was that I saw before me. Little did I realize how dangerous it was for you to allow the blossom of hope to take root in your heart. A fire was burning in the clearing, a cooking pot standing next to it, and what seemed to be a makeshift tent nearby. Someone was here. Someone with food. Hello. I managed with a very raspy voice I was sure was not my own. Slowly and cautiously, I made my way into the camp, a feeling of weariness consuming my momentary glee. There was a strange coppery smell in the air that filled my heart with dread and caused the flower of hope that had blossomed inside me to wilt, yet I knew not why. Hello? I managed again, yet this time only barely louder than a whisper. My eyes darted from the cooking pot standing next to the fire to the makeshift tent. The pot was turned over, all its content being soaked up by the soil. The nearby tent was ripped, four menacing-looking slits waving in the wind as if to warn me of danger. Then my eyes found the sight that has never left me since. As I peered around the flames, I saw the source of the coppery smell. A pool of crimson blood was accumulating next to the mangled body of a man that was ripped open by some sort of animal. The sight caused a new feeling that blossomed inside me, a feeling that left an everlasting mark on my soul. The flower that blossomed inside me now was a flower covered in thorns, so unlike the flower of hope that was there just a few seconds ago. I was trembling now, but not of cold. No, I was violently shaking because of fear. I turned to flee back into the shadows, the shadows that could hide me just as well as it could hide those demons that made those noises. But as I turned, I found myself facing the creature who had killed the man. A wolf with a blood-covered muzzle limped forward from out the shadows. Its hackles were raised and hit at the ugly scar where its left eye had once been. The creature bared its teeth at me with a growl, and instinctively I knew what was coming next. I made to turn and run in the other direction, but as I made to move, my feet got caught up in one another, and I went sprawling down to the ground. Something brushed against my bare back before my body met the earth again. A loud yelping filled the air as I attempted to slump back to my feet. As I got up to my feet, my eyes found the creature in absolute agony in the middle of the fire. It leapt at me as I had fell, and had flown straight over me into the fire. Its hurt leg was caught between two flaming logs. I stared in horror as the beast burned to death amid the flames, its frantic attempts at freeing itself futile as the flames devoured its life. Again, I wept myself to sleep that night. When I woke again, it was due to the painful pressure in my bowels. I had not eaten in days, and the strength I had left in my body would attest to that. I knew that something needed to be done. Somehow, I needed to come by something edible. But where food was found had never occurred to me before. Somehow, it had always just miraculously been there. 
At the spot, my stomach gave an almighty growl that caused me to start. The grumbling reminded me so much of the wolf's snarling fangs that for a moment I feared that it had returned to life. My eyes flickered to the pile of ash and the carcass of the fallen beast atop. Steam was still rising from the charred meat of the dead animal, and once again my stomach gave another growl. Saliva filled my mouth as I sniffed the air, smelling the sweet aroma of cooked meat. I did not halt to think about what I was doing. All I knew was that I needed food, and this thing before me would suffice. And so, I crawled to the smouldering wolf and began to tear into the charred flesh. It was still warm from the flames, and burned both to my mouth and fingers. But I did not care. My stomach did not care. When I had finally eaten my fill, I saw the tipped cooking pot, a small amount of water still inside it. I fell to my knees and shoved my head fully into the pot, drinking the brackish water like some sort of wild animal. The small amount was not enough to satisfy me, but it did suffice to sustain me, for the time being at least. When I was done, I sat back, my thoughts travelling to what would be the next step for me. My mind supplied only one reply to the question. Stay alive. The events that followed those in the clearing are memories that have conjoined and lost clarity over time. I am no longer capable of distinguishing one day from the next, or to fully recall what I felt or thought in that time. I suppose the events that followed can be summed up as follows. After I had made my resolution to do whatever it takes to survive, I had strode to the dead man's tent and taken all the clothes I could find. All of it was far too big for me, but it was the best I had. I rolled up the sleeves and trouser legs to make sure they were out of the way, and then I started walking. I walked for hours on end, day after day, until my feet were bloody and blistered. Yet I kept on walking, only ever pausing long enough to eat some berries or drink some water from the river, sometimes even just sucking dew off a leaf. I recall one horrible day that was spent by me crying in agony as I kept retching from the berries I had eaten the previous day. I do not know how long I spent wandering that forest like some sort of aimless spirit, but eventually I found my way out of the forest of trees, and found before me a forest of stone and brick. In the city full of people, I thought I would finally find some solace, but I was wrong. There was no peace and happiness to be found in this concrete forest. No man, woman or beast felt any inclination of kindness towards the forlorn and forgotten creature that staggered into the city one cold winter morning. None would listen to my pleas for help or to my declarations of abuse. Now here in the city I might have been surrounded by other humans, but for all the notice they gave me, I might as well have stayed in the forest. At least the loneliness I felt in the forest did not come accompanied with this feeling of self-loathing. Here it is that I learned that a person may feel lonelier when surrounded by people than when they are in complete solitude. I spent my first few nights in the city, sleeping in alleyways, digging my food out of other people's discarded trash, 
Surrounded by the constant hustle and bustle of the city, the cold did not seem to find me as easy as it did in the forest. Small consolation, seeing as I no longer found food as easily either, at least not food I was allowed to take. There were many shops in the city, with carts, filled to the brim with fresh fruit and vegetables, with meat and fish, more food than I can ever remember having, yet had no access to any of it. First time I saw them, I attempted to beg for scraps, but this only got curses flung at me, and missed kicks or swipes. The owners were loath to part with any of the wares, no matter how foul or rancid they turned. And after a few days of this, I finally gave up on relying on the kindness of others. Kindness was not something given freely, and neither was food. And so, I stole for the first time. I began small, just an apple, slipped beneath my too big shirt. Then, later it escalated, to grabbing a whole leg of meat and running for my life. I was caught a few times, and was beaten to near death, my punishers having little to no sympathy with me. When I recall this time of my life, I mostly recall my bitter nights spent in my alley, brooding on the unfair nature of life, how I pleaded with the gods that would not answer or show any form of leniency. I only received food when I took it myself. I only got money when I earned it with my own sweat and blisters, and I only got respect when it was my blood that paid for it. The first time I paid this blood price, it was with three older boys, the smallest of which was easily twice my size. They tried to steal a bag of coins I had earned earlier that day while working at the docks loading cargo on the ships. It had been hard work, but it had paid off well, with enough money to maybe even spend a night in a bed for once. It had been a promise of something good for once in my life. A promise the boys felt I did not deserve. They attacked me with the ferocity of monsters, the hammer-like fist pounding my face, stomach, and kidneys, each of them screaming some variation of the command to drop the coins. A command I had no desire in obeying. I clung to my hard-earned money with the same determination that I had clung to life with, and so they commenced to beat me into a bloody mess until they could finally wrestle the money from my limp hands. When I awoke from my unconscious state, I could barely see out of either of my eyes, and every breath I took caused pain, only equaled by the throbbing stabs I felt in my lower back. A shadow of despair covered my soul, as the realization dawned upon me. The devastating loss, my crumbling desire of hope. I cannot recall feeling any indescribable emotion at that moment. No ascertainable feelings. The flower of hope that had blossomed inside had finally withered and died. It had taken a beating since the very beginning. It had thrived on conditions no other life could. But now, no blossom bloomed inside my desert of desolate despair. If I had to describe my feelings at that moment, I would probably say that this is how it feels to bleed disappointment and weep regret. I wanted to fall to the ground and shatter into a thousand pieces. I wanted to cry so hard that blood would run off my cheeks. I wanted to go completely mad at that moment, 
to escape the horrors of reality and insanity. But no, that would have been too kind a fate, and life has never shown me any kindness. So I just wandered the city, wandered until my body gave out from hunger and fatigue. There where I fell is where I called up into a ball, and stared into space for hours, my thoughts going absolutely everywhere and nowhere. Sleep finally took me, but it did not offer the sweet release I had badly needed. Instead, my dreams dragged me to the darkest corners of my mind, areas that so resembled the horrors that were made up out of my life. When next I awoke, it was to the sight of an ancient-looking man sitting on a nearby bench. He was looking into the sky with an expression of amusement on his face, almost as if listening to a lively conversation from some unknown place. The moment I moved, he turned in his seat, staring straight into my swollen eyes. Are you all right, lad? The old man asked me, his sparkling blue eyes refusing to relinquish my own. He was very old, older than any other I've ever seen before, yet there was a quality of timelessness about him. His white beard and long white hair framed his kind and wrinkled face, giving the appearance of a face peering through the clouds. I nodded, not wishing to speak, not knowing if I even could. My body felt heavy and weak, my mind chained with despair. I've seen that look before, the old man said, looking into my eyes. Those are the eyes of a defeated man. I never thought I'd see that gaze from one as young as you, though. I looked away. The man's knowledge of my pain making me uncomfortable. I considered getting up and leaving, finding some new corner of desolate solitude to crumble into. Yet something bound me to that place, some kind of sickening curiosity concerning the old man. Come here, lad, the old man called, holding out a piece of bread. Come share in my good fortune. You do look like you could use it. I stared curiously at the man, my natural mistrust of others urging me to caution. But in the end, my hunger won out over my sense of caution. I took the offered loaf of bread and ate it in silence with my benefactor. He did not speak again as I ate. He only stared at my ragged form, no discernible emotion in his gaze. When I was done with the bread, the man handed me a cup of milk without a word. I took the cup and stared at the man. His wordless kindness was too much for me, and suddenly I began to sob. The old man seemed to have been waiting for this, and immediately placed his arm around my shoulders. There, there, my boy. It's all right. What, what do you know? The angry question had escaped me before I could stop myself, but it did not seem to deter the old man much. I know that you must have suffered a great pain. I know that you are tired. I know that you tried to fight. But as much as you tried to stand up, life just kept knocking you down. I know this is what you are feeling. Because I have felt it as well. The words of the old man seemed to stir something within me, and even more tears burst forth. <laughs> I'm so tired of fighting against life itself. I'm just a child, I sobbed into the man's shoulder. I know, my lad. Life will always try to knock you down. And the harder you fight, the harder it tries to keep you down. But I have learned one thing in all of my experience. It is the strongest among us that life pushes the hardest. 
Life does not bother keeping the weak down. They manage that fine on their own. No, it is the strong that life attempts to stop. And the stronger you are, the stronger life will push. That only tells me that you must be one strong spirit to have suffered this much at such a young age. I stared up at the blue eyes that were trying so hard to comfort me. The moment our guys met, his eyes crinkled with joy, as if he was seeing exactly what he wanted to. Remember, my boy, iron is forged in fire and with hammers. You are like iron. Life may put you into the depths of flame. It may beat you constantly, but as long as you do not bend or shatter, you will come out greater and stronger than ever before. I'm only a mere child. I can't fight anymore. I'm afraid all the time. I'm always hungry. And I cannot remember ever not being tired. Fear is nothing more than the voice of doubt whispering in your ear. Do not doubt yourself, my boy. I don't know what has happened to you, but I think it is clear that you have learned at a very early age that security is temporary and fragile. If you choose to accept the pain life gives you, allow them to make you stronger, then you will be able to make your own security. You are obviously meant for greatness, and that is why your soul will never find true peace until you follow that path. Your tears will not lead you to peace. Only by striving for that greatness Will you know true happiness? It seems everyone suffers these days. Yet no one is willing to make a change or a difference. Change only one person's life. And you will have served a purpose in yours. Change a hundred lives. And you will be remembered as a hero. Change every life you come into contact with. And you will become a legend. And you, my lad, have the potential to do just that. The sage wisdom of the old man filled my head. Every word of wisdom filling me and making me stronger. I was too young to truly understand why at that moment. But his words made me hungry. Hungry for the strength that it would take to never be defeated ever again. I stood up from out his comforting embrace, the resolve inside me hardening to steel. I knew as I stood there that this moment would change my life. My new resolve and understanding would no longer allow me to wallow in the self-pity of a child. From this moment on, I would not be satisfied to just get by, by just surviving. From that moment, the spirit of a conqueror was born, and I would conquer the greatest enemy any man had ever known. Life. Thank you, I said, turning to the old sage, who I knew, even then, had changed my life forever. The only thing that my gaze met as I turned was the cup of milk, sitting where a second ago my saviour had just comforted me. To this day, I cannot express the reason for the smile that then creased my face and the refusal to leave, but something in me seemed to have understood what had just happened and it urged me 
not to question it. Thank you, I said again, picking up the cup of milk and draining it. And after that cup of milk, I became the legend I am today. But that is a very long story. This was the accounts by H.O. the Younger. As promised, a little bit about him. Have a look at his profile on Scriggler. He's got a bunch of essays and a bunch of stories there. And um, a few excerpts from his books, which are available on Amazon, incidentally. Uh, it's a series of books. It's called Path of Power. And it's uh, kind of a pretty epic fantasy uh, type of story. I think the story itself is brilliant and it's really well written. It's very imaginative. So I, uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So go check it out. And so we're moving to poetry now. And, and the first poet I'm going to present uh, or introduce to you is uh, K.D. Rose. Now, K.D. is a pretty well-established author. She's got a number of books on Amazon. There's quite a list. So definitely have a look at her profile. She's also... Um, very active on social media, she's got profiles in, in any social network and uh, I think uh, many authors could take a page from her book in terms of how you're supposed to establish yourself and promote yourself. So it, it's definitely uh, worth having a look at what she's doing uh, from that angle alone. But not only, of course, her, her poetry is very interesting. In fact, the poem that I'm going to play for you today, it's got uh, a very interesting layout, the, the way it, it, it's structured, so it's, it's quite quite a play with the form. And I think when you listen to it, you, you don't actually notice that, so it's worth having a look at it in the written form as well and, and compare the two. And it's, you know, in a way it actually shows just how organically that, uh, that happens. So this poem is called Providence in Arlington, and it's K.D. Rose. Arlington is famous for the dead. They walk the streets each day, head in a box, watch sun shine on the husks, empty fabric, smoking cigarettes over bridges that fade. You can see the dead all right, homesick. They look good to me, but I may be drunk on the thickness of fumes that make decay look new. But we would know us, alive, we are not double frappuccino, latte, no whip, progeny of wounds, cowled, forbidden recollection, afraid our flowers will wilt before they bloom, afraid our temple is burnt beyond recognition, afraid our children will awake screaming, afraid our light won't shine under mud and crust, layers of skin, mustaches and spaghetti sauce, no umbrella in the rain, or afraid that it shines but can only be seen by the absent, the wayward, the wicked, the bones, afraid our karma is too weak to see us through, this landscape of the dead, the lost, the verboten, of the sailors with no shoes, the empire with hollow feet, the cut-out tongues, afraid for one minute, one minute of brain-stupefying, hand-sweating, eye-swelling presence of delight. The junkies of this world no longer taste their drugs. They're hooked on the glamour, watching dirty fingers scrape white insides, the ritual of living backwards from pure. Tequila and champagne, swell gals, but never quite satisfied. Scotch and whiskey, Jim and Jack, lousy one-night stands, those guys, where nicotine is a razor to our cheek because we like our pain painless, antiseptic is our desires. And white-haired men might turn 17 again if, just to forget we hadn't sold ourselves, the pretense to occupy a space and not relate to ourselves, our dead, frozen faces, 
our unique hatred and naked, malleable lives. Bearing inaudible sorrow, we swim like lemmings to destinies unhuman. No one's watching the children. The last train left the station. All I see are ghosts in empty homes, picture frames that are broken. Everyone is a soldier. It's just they never know. This was Providence in Arlington by K.D. Rose. We're going to move halfway across the world from Arlington all the way to South Lebanon, where our next poet is coming from. Her name is Nural Haj. She's, uh, she's a young poet. She's studying architecture and she writes beautiful, beautiful poetry. It's coming from a very personal space, I think, for her. And she's certainly not shying away from very challenging topics. And this particular poem that I've chosen for you is no exception. Uh, and you'll see why when you listen to it. I don't want to give anything away. Uh, and I think her recital itself is very powerful. Uh, it's it's actually going quite well with uh, with the poem itself. You can see that uh, how genuine it is. So um, this is called I Remember, and it's by Nural Haj. I remember that day. I remember it well. I was three years old, and you were only a month. People don't understand why I missed you because in years I wasn't that much. You died in my arms, a slow but painless death. The man wasn't there. I was alone with my mom. We stood in the street, waiting for someone to come, a stranger to be a savior, or simply our ride to the hospital. The man wasn't there, but a stranger was. I couldn't cry. I had to be strong for her, for the dying child and for my mom. I had to be strong for my mom because the man wasn't there. I was alone with my mom. Through the doors we walked. Mom had some hope, but mine was lost. I was three years old, but I knew a moth couldn't bleed so much and survive. That little creature was drained and I knew she was leaving us. The man wasn't there. I was alone with my mom, but then, then he came back. Mom needed the hug, some kindness, nothing more. Instead, he showed her cruelty. Her heart swelled and her limbs were sore. I was three years old. In years I wasn't that much, but I remember every blue and every black, every red and every loud cry my mom uttered from the cruelty you chose to have. I was three years old. In years I wasn't that much, and I prayed for us to go back to that day when the man wasn't there and I was alone with my mom. So this was I Remember by Nur al-Hash, an absolutely incredible poem. Uh, I must say I, I had to take a few minutes after after reading it for the first time and uh, obviously listening to it as an even more overwhelming experience uh, so much emotion is crammed into it um, so but we must crack on and the next point i'm going to introduce is from malta so we we're making a much smaller jump this time and her name is uh, miriam kaleya miriam has recently published um, a collection of poetry it's called pomegranate heart and I've read quite a few poems from that collection. Uh, she uh, published a few of them on Scrigler. And I must say that um, I think the, the name of the book captures the essence uh, of what she's doing quite well. It's, it's a really fitting name. 
uh, and it's a great metaphor as well. The poem that I've chosen to play today is the title poem from, from the collection. And it's, uh, I suppose it explains the title a little bit more, gives a little bit more of a, of a backstory. If you like it, have a look at her profile on Scrigler. Have a look at her book as well. There'll be the link there, and I'll post the link uh, in the description to this podcast as well. And um, she's quite active on social media. In fact, she's on, uh, of course, on Scrigler, on uh, Twitter, on Facebook. Miriam C., I believe she's on Facebook. And she's also on Instagram, which is quite... Uh, um, Kind of, I suppose, a new thing for poets to use, but uh, it can be used to great effect. And in fact, uh, Scrigler itself recently, we we've started uh, using it to promote our publication of the day. And uh, this is something we are probably going to expand on as as time goes by. But I digress. So this is Miriam Kalia with Pomegranate Heart. She counts the seeds of my pomegranate heart, the same. Always the same, no matter how many times she counts. Her fingers are stained, and though she may wash and scrub, there I will be, in her skin, lodged in places where she cannot wash me out. Miriam Kalea with Pomegranate Heart. So we're going to leave poetry behind now and move on to the story, and in fact, uh, I would probably describe this as a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale by Mike Russell. Uh, he's coming from Brighton, so a much, much smaller jump this time around. And uh, he's got a number of interesting things up on Scrigler, and it's also worth checking out his uh, website. It's called strangebooks.com. And that strange there is uh, is definitely for a reason, and, and, and so is my description uh, of, of his stories being um, kind of modern-day fairy tales. They've got a very unique sort of quality to them. Uh, they're almost spoken word-like, uh, and you can definitely see them performed in front of the uh, live audience. Uh, they, they've got this really unique quality to them. It's, it's probably the simplicity in, in some way, but a very elegant uh, simplicity that works really, really well. This particular story is called Dance, and it's one of my absolute favorites. So this is Dance by Mike Russell. Enjoy. Dunce. Everyone calls dunce dunce. Everyone thinks that dunce is an idiot. I used to think so too, but not anymore. Dunce is completely bald and has a really pointed head, so the temptation to get him paralytic on his 30th birthday carry him to the tattooist and get a nice big D smack bang in the middle of his forehead was too much for me. Trouble is, he can't afford to have it removed, so he wears a big plaster over it. Gangs of children tease him. What's underneath the plaster, mister? Show us. They swear he has a third eye under there. My name is Bill, but Dunce calls me Fez on account of my hat. I've known Dunce for over 16 years. I don't have to use my memory to work that out. I just count the number of boxes of Turkish Delight I've got stashed in my cupboard. Dunce buys me a box every birthday. Dunce thinks that because I wear a fez, I must be Turkish. I'm not. And that being Turkish, I must like that powder-covered gunk. I don't. I hate the stuff. On my last birthday, after saying, No, Dunce, I'll eat it later, and stashing box number 16 in the cupboard, I decided to take Dunce to the theatre. He'd never been before. The play was called Death in the Dark. We had front row seats. Dunce was captivated. He stared at the actors with a gaping mouth. 
the lights dimmed to darkness. Kitty Malone, the beautiful star of the show, was stood centre stage. A shot was heard. Dunce jumped right out of his seat. What was that? he said. The lights came back on and Kitty was lying in a pool of blood. Dunce let out a scream and shouted, Someone call for an ambulance and the police. The audience thought that Dunce was an actor, that the play was being cleverly extended beyond the stage, questioning the boundaries of theatre. What's wrong with you? Dunce shouted at the audience. How can you carry on as if nothing has happened? This is wonderful, just wonderful, I heard someone say behind me. Kitty was stoically sticking to her role, thinking that the show must go on, but Dunce was clambering up onto the stage, crying, stroking Kitty's hair and checking her pulse. She's alive, he shouted with relief. No, I'm not, Kitty hissed at him through clenched teeth. That was it, I was in hysterics. What birthday treat this was turning out to be. I'm acting, it's part of the play. No one really shot me, Kitty hissed at Dunce. The realisation was excruciatingly slow. I watched Dunce's face change from shock to confusion to understanding to embarrassment. He made his way back to his seat. He didn't speak or look at me until the play was over. The play got a standing ovation and we headed for the bar. Kitty was in the bar too. She smiled at Dunce, who blushed. She seemed to be fascinated by the top of his head. She walked over and invited him to her dressing room. Twelve hours later, and Dunce was in love. How about that? And what's more, Kitty was in love too. And not only that, but they were in love with each other. Kitty fell for Dunce. Not fell for as in was deceived by, because there's no deception where Dunce is concerned. He can't do it. But she fell from her deceptions towards him. I couldn't believe it. It won't last, I said to Dunce. Enjoy it while you can, but face facts. You are Dunce, and she's Kitty Malone. Think about it. Dunce told me that Kitty had a thing about ice cream cones. A fetish, you could say. She ate six a day. She liked to bite off the tip of the cone and suck out all the ice cream. She had a recording of ice cream van music that she played whilst they were having sex. She was forever stroking the top of Dunce's head. Then came the day. Dunce came round looking really worried. Fez, have you seen Kitty? Do you know where she is? No, I haven't seen her. Why? What's the problem? I had a dream last night, Dunce said. I dreamt that I was in bed, and I looked at the calendar by the side of my bed, and it was tonight. I put out my hand to touch Kitty, but she wasn't there. There was just this cold sludge covering her side of the bed, and this smell, vanilla, it was melted ice cream. So what's the problem? I think that something's going to happen to Kitty. I have to find her before tonight. I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning alone in a bed full of melted ice cream. Dance, dreams don't mean anything, and prophecies are impossible. Sit yourself down, let's have a couple of beers. I opened a cupboard, reached in to get the beers, and a pile of boxes of Turkish Delight toppled over and fell out breaking open, spilling their contents all over the floor. Dunce looked at the boxes, then looked at me. I watched his face go through the same slow transformation from shock to confusion to understanding to embarrassment that I had witnessed so many times before. You don't like Turkish delight, he said. I said nothing and guiltily handed him a beer. Dunce sighed and said, So why did I have that dream? No reason at all, I said. We sat in silence for a while, then Dunce suddenly stood up. 
It's no good, Fez. I have to find her. Dunce found Kitty in the centre of town, lying on the pavement in a pool of blood. An ambulance and the police were on their way. An ice cream vendor was crying and yelling, I don't understand, I don't understand. A huge plastic ice cream cone was protruding from Kitty's chest. It had fallen from on top of the ice cream shop for no apparent reason, smashed through her ribcage and crushed her heart. Dunce cried. Then he cried some more. The next day he cried, and the day after that he cried. Three weeks later he awoke, dressed, ate some breakfast, then cried. The next day he came round to see me. He was crying. Hello, Dunce, I said. Do you want a beer? What's wrong with you, he said. How can you carry on as if nothing has happened? It was an accident, Dunce, I said angrily. A random occurrence. These things happen. You just have to get on with life. Why are you so stupid? I regretted saying it as soon as I heard it come out of my mouth. Dunt stared at me with tears in his eyes. A fez is only a severed cone, Dunt said. At least I have a point. I took off my hat and looked at it sullenly. Dunt's had a point that he had a point. If he'd found Kitty a moment earlier, if I hadn't delayed him with my arrogance, my cynicism. Fez, Dunt said, you remember the tears that I cried in the theatre? when I thought that Kitty was dead, but she wasn't. I think that the tears I am crying now are the same as those. I didn't understand what was going on in the theatre, and I didn't understand what was going on when the cone fell on her. I think that maybe we only cry because we don't understand what is going on. Maybe if we understood what is really going on, we wouldn't cry at all, ever. Dunt smiled through his tears, and beneath the plaster on his forehead, I swear I saw something move. Once again, this was Dance by Mike Russell. This brings me to the end of today's podcast, but not just yet, because I did promise you that nice surprise earlier. And uh, that surprise is some music. I'm going to play you a song by a Canadian band called The Sands. And... Interestingly enough, I discovered them very recently by chatting to their lead singer on Twitter, of all places. So uh, I never thought it would be possible to discover new music through Twitter, but apparently it is. Uh, it does happen. The band is fairly new. They, uh, um, they all experienced musicians, but uh, that particular project started only... I, I think they recorded their first album in February, so it's very, very new. Uh, they're touring Canada in the moment, uh, unfortunately not coming to London any time soon as far as I'm aware. I'd love to see them uh, live, and if you do have a chance to go see them uh, near where you are, uh, I would definitely recommend doing that. Um, well, you'll, you'll hear them in a minute, and I think uh, that will convince you. Now, this is the last you're going to hear from me today. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, uh, the stories, the poetry uh, um, and uh, the music and hopefully my trouble in between as well. Francesca's coming back for the next episode, so it'll be a lot more fun. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you too. And so I'm leaving you with Julie McGear and The Sands. Be more. The sky blue torn wide open This day cries out quite pleasantly The beaks of gulls slide into the sandbar 
friendly smiles Only for the friendly Stand tall Or say nothing at all In spite of the sink We are much more than this In the best of In the best